Welcome to the Fantasy End Podcast, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. Welcome to the Fantasy End. Welcome back to the Fantasy End Podcast. This week, I'm thrilled to be hosting both Dan and Luke from the Don't Call It a Book Club podcast, which, as far as I can tell, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, seems to be an actual book club podcast. (laughs) Um, I wouldn't call it that, but... uh... Yeah, don't call it... Okay, so we do read books and talk about them. But I wouldn't call it a book yeah, club. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a book club either. Uh, this is Dan, by the way. Yeah, and this is and this is Luke. Okay, yeah. Well, my experience with book clubs, uh, 50% of it has involved me getting into fights with uh, elderly women. So <laughs> I don't think like the, the level of intellectual discussion necessarily qualifies something as a book club. Right, and that's, that's giving us a lot of, a lot of credit we don't have super intellectual conversations. Uh, ours is more like if you need someone to get hyped with you about the fantasy book that you're just reading. Um, <laughs> that's kind of our move. I will say, I think that you're right. Part of the reason that you can't call it a book club is that we don't have those elderly women to get into a fight with. And that, I think, is generally a requirement. No. Um, but if there are any listening and would like to come on the show... Uh, let us know. <laughs> uh, right. So, yeah. So this is a crossover kind of combination episode between the Fantasy End podcast and the Don't Call It a Book Club podcast, uh, where we're going to be discussing Zen Cho's novella, The Order of the Pure Moon Reflected in Water. So part one is going to be here on the Fantasy Inn, and part two of the discussion will take place over on the Don't Call It a Book Club podcast. Uh, so when we finish up here, make sure you jump over to their podcast and check out the next half. All right, so yeah, let's just jump right on in. So, so yeah, I guess just to get us started with this crew, uh, I think it might be fun to talk about, as a little warm-up, what fantasy or science fiction crew would you want to like actually be a part of? Like, Obviously, there are a lot that it would be cool to be a part of. Like, Obviously, the... Like, Star Wars original trilogy crew with Han Solo and Luke Skywalker would be very cool to be a part of. But here I think it's like, which one you think you would fit the best in? Which crew do you think you would enjoy the most? And and I think for at least the listeners on our show, keeping it relatively spoiler free would, would be good. So obviously, I think a lot of crews end in tragedy. So so maybe we will ignore the sad parts of these crews that we would potentially be joining. And I have one that Luke's going to laugh at because I, I say this as many times as I can on our show. Uh, but I would be in Locke Lamora's crew from The Lies of Locke Lamora. That crew is just, they're so tight. They're very cool. I don't think I would be like a very big contributing member of this crew. Like I'm, I'm, I have no misconceptions about my abilities here. I just, (laughs) I just want to be a part of it. I just want to be a witness to it. I was going to say you're, you're giving yourself a lot of credit, uh, by being 
like selected to be in that crew. Yeah. But, uh, if you're just if you're just kind of a bystander that's there for for moral support, I think that's good. You'd be like a crew mascot or something. Exactly. Yeah. Or like the annoying kid who they can't get to leave. You're no, you're the person that stays back at the at the headquarters, and they can come back and tell their cool stories too. I would love that. I would absolutely love that. So I I thought about this a little bit. And the thing is, I don't want to be involved in the kind of terrible things that happen to to crews and fantasy books. So I've decided that I just want to go, I just want to like live in a pretty, pretty chill place. I'm going uh, the inhabitants of Redwall. That's where I'm staying. Oh, Ooh, I hadn't even thought I'm just of that. Hanging out, eating some good food. <laughs> so much good food. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I'm doing. You're enjoying a scone. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so since I haven't thought about this as much, I'm probably going to go for an angle for I don't think anything terrible would happen to me, and I don't need a lot of like specific skills to contribute. So I'm going to go with the uh, crew for Becky Chambers' The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet because they're just all very kind and chill and mostly friendly, uh, and I feel like I could probably fit in with that group. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I don't know if Luke and I have ever read uh, that book. It sounds lovely though it's good it's it's very <laughs> small scale slice of life all of becky chambers stuff mostly is so there's not like huge stakes involved for the most part they're just like i mean the the plot of the book is literally they're taking the long way to a small planet that's pretty angry so it's just them in a ship just like hanging out and chatting and stopping at planets along the way very cool so it's got kind of like a firefly vibe to it with a ship crew yeah, Firefly, if they didn't get into gunfights and they weren't smuggling anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds, nice. very, that sounds lovely. Very lovely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. I think, should we should we get into this book? I'm warmed up. Yeah, yeah let's I, do it. I think I'm ready to go. Okay. Yeah. So, we read... The Order of the Pure Moon Reflected in Water by, by Zen Cho. Zen Cho, good book. Good book. Good little short book that I enjoyed. Nice little like afternoon read. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting to me because I don't read a lot of novellas. So it's kind of this weird middle ground between a short story where you can knock it out really fast and a book where you really sink your teeth into it for multiple sittings. So you can definitely sit down and read this entire thing in one go. And it's probably not going to take you more than a couple hours. Uh, I'm a very slow reader, so this took me a little while to get through. Uh, but it's also a lot faster than pretty much anything else we could have read. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's... I think the novella is very interesting just in terms of like a format. We've read a few on the podcast, but how quickly the author has to give you the the perspective of what's going on and how how quickly they have to like drop you into this world that you don't really know what's happening and then also give you some kind of plot. Because a lot of fantasy, you have to do a good amount of world building in the exposition and then you can get to the plot. But it's just so compressed in the novella format, um, I think it's a it's probably a significant challenge for a lot of authors to be able to do that. But yeah, it's very it's very interesting to get a lot of this world building so quickly and throughout the whole the book, right? Like even at the end, we're getting aspects of the world that 
every character knows, but we're just learning. Um, yeah, and I mean, this this entire story feels like it's kind of the margins of this broader epic fantasy story that could be like, I don't know, a 10-book series or something. And we're getting these side characters who are kind of doing their own thing. They're definitely affected by the fallout of the main events, but they are mostly kind of on their own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And this like, kind of like the the book that you mentioned uh, in the warm up, it seems like the stakes aren't as high as they could be for this particular story. Like the rest of the world probably has stories that have huge stakes. And we're just seeing a we're just seeing a little a little like adventure. Right. Yeah, pretty much. One thing that I noticed about this story that I actually really appreciated is the way that some characters are described, like I feel like in a lot of books we get super detailed descriptions of what someone looks like and and their like personality. <laughs> One example that I really appreciated was uh, I forget the name. I think it was uh, Mister Mister. Well, the guy that was buying the artifacts uh, when their when their sale got broken up. He was just described as someone that looks like he embezzles money. <laughs> and I just like appreciate that very simple description of someone. Uh, I don't know. Gives me a good idea of what that guy looks like. Right. Right. Well, and it gives it gives a great idea, I think, but everybody's idea is is pretty different of what that looks like. Right. So like I when I read that, I was like, oh yeah, definitely I know who this person is for sure. But I imagine that picture is very different from from Luke and, and Travis when they read that. And we're like, oh, definitely embezzling guy. Yeah, I got him. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm weird in that like I really appreciated how short that description was because it gave me a good overall feel. But I don't picture characters at all when I'm reading. So I don't really know what I was picturing. If I had to think of something, I'd say maybe like upper or middle management or something like kind of looks like their hygiene's not entirely up to par with what it should be. But I don't know how you translate that into the past in a fantasy world, right? Because I'm very much thinking of like Western office job kind of modern day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that that's very interesting that you don't you don't typically like picture characters. I feel like in my mind, picture is the wrong word for what I do with characters. I feel like that gave me a sense of who that person is, mm-hmm. but not, I think I said what they look like earlier. I don't think that's really what it is. I just like have in my mind an idea of what he is that's that's more well-rounded than I think would have been given if it had just been like describing what his face looked like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we also expect him to be the kind of character who would embezzle money. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And we find out later that he's probably just going to steal the money that they were supposed to take with them and say that they stole it instead. So, it, yeah, it immediately characterizes him super well. Another characterization that we get very early on that I want to talk about is how hot Fung Cheung Fung Cheng? How are we going to say Fung Chun? The hot yeah, let's, apo- let's apologize in advance for the mispronunciation that's yeah. going to happen yeah. here. The hot, the hot leader. Yeah, and extra level of apologies from me because I actually listened to the audiobook where I'm sure there's like a somewhat official pronunciation and I still could not tell you. <laughs> okay, so we're all going to be on about the same level then, uh, yes. which I appreciate. But this guy... How hot, 
how hot is this guy? Because he walks into a coffee shop and people stop and stare at him. I don't know if I have ever in my life experienced someone who is this hot because like, okay, I've definitely seen people stop and stare at celebrities. That no question that happens. But I think that's for a very different reason. This guy is not a celebrity. This is just somebody who walked off the street and is so hot, people are stopping what they're doing and staring at him. I mean, I feel like that's kind of a movie scene almost, right? Because I've definitely seen scenes where like someone walks into a club or something and all of a sudden everyone just turns their head and looks at them, right? Uh, I have never encountered that in real life. Maybe there's just a lack of really super hot people in my life. <laughs> Yeah, that that could actually that could be it. That could be it. I don't know though. We all run fantasy podcasts. I think we're hanging out with the upper echelons of society. So I don't <laughs> that's think that's true. That's it. <laughs> I I feel like there's a chance that this is just the only guy that does like grooming. You know? Maybe like but- he's got a skincare routine. He's plucking his eyebrows. Um and just no one else is, and it shows. I, I don't know. Ooh, actually, okay, at first I wanted to disagree with you because when the nun who joins our group, whose name is Get M or Get M, when she joins the crew, their hygiene kicks up several notches. And that's like her contribution is to help everyone with their hygiene. And so at first I wanted to say, well, of course this guy is the just like the rest of them. Like none of them look very good. And I will also say that he is described as having very dusty clothing when he walks in. However, later in the book, the Mata confuses Tet Seng for Fung Cheung. And this is after they've undergone their like uh, hygiene transformation with our nun that joined them. So this could actually be true where the nun who is like giving everybody proper hygiene and like developing a skincare routine to fit everybody is making them all just like the hottest people around. And so when Tet Sang gets confused for the really hot one, it's not that they didn't know what the hot one looks like. They were just like, this guy's super hot. So it's got to be it's got to be the hot bandit, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's your problem with your, like, official name being Hot Bandit, right? Like, there can't be that many Hot Bandits running around. (laughs) This is the other thing that I want to talk about with him is that, like, I think it makes you a terrible bandit to be hot. Like, I Mm. think being this hot makes you a bad criminal because you're immediately recognizable. Like, they don't need... A poster of you hanging up in the town square they're just like report anybody you see who is so hot you're you're <laughs> stopping what you're doing to stare at them just tell us about them yeah although to be fair they do have posters hanging up of them so that does contribute <laughs> yes it definitely does and we see it in action when they're deciding who's going to actually make the handoff and they decide it has to be tet sang because the hot bandit is too hot because he'll be recognized. That's the explicit reason why he can't go in and do the deal is because he's not inconspicuous enough. People will say, remember that hot guy who came in? 
to the tailor shop and did that deal. I mean, I do feel like, though, we should say we don't see that much actual bandit activity going on for these people. Like, they're never robbing anyone or, like, hurting anyone or anything like that. So my headcanon is is that they put up wanted posters because, I mean, they want them, right? Like, they want the hot bandit. So, like, have you seen this person? We will pay you to bring this person to us. <laughs> that is a fascinating take because I have been wondering this whole book... What did they do to get these wanted posters put up for them, right? Because, yeah, we haven't seen them do any, like, banditry. They're, they're taking rice from one place to another. And the artifacts that they have, they didn't steal from anywhere. It was, like, given to them. So why do they have these wanted posters? And, Travis, this is an outstanding suggestion, is that they just want this hot bandit because of how hot he is. <laughs> and right, I mean, I, I could be wrong, but I think he's the only one that actually has the poster. They know he's like hot bandit with crew, but like it's his face they're plastering everywhere. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like it's his face and then some shady figures behind him. Exactly. It's like you haven't unlocked these characters yet. <laughs> I I think that this is this is similar to an idea that I had, or or more of a question that I had. So it seems to me like there's kind of a a propaganda war mm. being run along mm. with the like actual silent war where the quote unquote bandits are being like persecuted because of whatever government is saying they did. And and for one thing I want to say it's a mistake for the bandits to embrace the name bandits. <laughs> They're losing there. But to, to our hot guy, I feel like people sympathize with hot people more. If you see like a commercial and it's a hot person, you're more likely to buy the product, right? He is making people sympathize with the bandits a little bit too much. And that's my theory as to why, as to what they're doing that, that the government really needs them. Because they're like, people are going to want to join the bandits because they think that the bandits are hot. Got to cut that off. Oh, okay, Luke. This is outstanding too because the poster of him isn't as hot as he is in real life. Mm -hmm. Because if they put up a poster with the hottest guy in town <laughs> that was described as a bandit in this coffee shop, people are going to see that and be like, Ooh, where can I find this guy? I gotta meet. <laughs> yeah. I gotta meet this hot bandit. But right, people are gonna run off with the hot bandit. Exactly. And in the book, it's it's explained that well, maybe the artist was somebody's cousin, and so that's how they got away with putting this not quite as realistic depiction of him in the town square. But I think this. It's much more likely it was intentional. It's much more likely the government knew exactly what they were doing. The protectorate knew exactly what they were doing when they put up this less hot version of him in the coffee shop because they don't want word getting out. You know, they want to find him, but they don't want everyone to know how hot he is. Yeah, it's kind of like the catch-22 for them, right? Because they want to, like, get these bandits, but at the same time, how do you put out wanted posters without saying, okay, everyone, avoid these bandits who never hurt anyone, are super hot, have loads of money, <laughs> and probably tons of food on them at the same time. Like, do not join them. They are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. Uh, I think easy, easy solution there is you just have him covered in leeches. 
right? Like you just say like, yeah, you could join them, but you're going to have a leech problem. Mm, mosquito bites, mm-hmm. terrible. Mm-hmm. That's true. Although once Gwet-M joins, they no longer have the insect problem, right? So, Yeah, that's a fair point. That's a fair point. Yeah, you can't give too many details as the protector. Otherwise, you start encouraging people to sign up. Yeah, that's tough. That's really tough. So I'm glad we're we're talking about Gwet-M a little bit. I think Gwet-M is very funny throughout this book. And I don't know... I don't know if you guys would agree. I don't, because sometimes it's hard to tell if she's being funny or naive. And I think she's just being very funny. Like, I think she knows exactly what she's doing. But I'm curious to hear what you guys think. I, I think so too, but it's kind of hard, right? Because one of the very first times she's interacting with the whole bandit crew, they're like, oh, hey, we could just like have you sleep with all of us. And she's like, yeah, great. Like, I would love to do that. One small catch, I'd have to chop off your dick afterwards. Um, and like, you can't be like so naive to like mean that at face value, right? She's got to know what she's saying there. I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think that I think that there's a mix, actually, Mm. where a lot of the time she's definitely being intentionally funny and like her her style of humor is this kind of like naive thing. But I also thought that like a lot of times that was just herself. So she definitely had those moments of being very funny, like Travis mentioned. But I don't know. I thought that a lot of times she was just very sincere. Maybe I'm wrong in this, though. I mean, that could very well be true. And that's where I think the the question comes in is because she's been in seclusion for like 10 years. Like she didn't know that the country has been embroiled in war for the last like 10 years in two wars, actually. Uh, and so I think there is definitely a component of her character that just doesn't really know a lot of what's what's going on in the outside world. Um, and might not necessarily remember a lot of social conventions. So I think there's definitely this question of if she is being just purely genuine and it's funny because of how obtuse it is, or if it's like she kind of recognizes that it's she can play it up a little bit. And so I think it could be a defense, like kind of a defense tactic is like she plays it up a little bit, but she's also like, hey, how is this going to play? Like... Hmm. I will say this, but, and I I think I could play it off as funny, but I am also curious what the answer is. Yeah. I I think you both probably have a good point there because she's been in isolation for at least 10 years. So she definitely can't be like really up on how social interaction goes or like broader events or anything like that. So she's definitely got to be uninformed. I don't know necessarily if she's naive or not, but she's not she's not aware of the broader world, but she clearly has some idea of what she's saying. Yeah. That's true. I don't want to talk about this too much because it's kind of gross, but I kind of love I kind of love the like dick chopping off solution to this <laughs> problem. And the reason why I love it is because in a lot of religions, if you do something that's like against the religion, there's not really any coming back from it. Like in a lot of religions, I'm not going to name any of them because I'm not trying to get destroyed by anyone, but there's like no coming back from a lot of things. 
And here, there's just like a ritual that you have to do and you're totally good. It's just like, all I gotta do to be totally right with the goddess again is cut off your dick and then it's fine. And then I'm like back in the good graces of the goddess and it's like nothing happened. And I think that's just like a great, a great thing. It's a great feature of this religion. It's very progressive when you think mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. <laughs> Although, I mean, so another thing that I liked about this, and this does kind of play off of that, is this feels like a very queer normative world. So, I mean, there could be, we don't know, there could be women in the bandits who would be like, oh, well, if all I have to do is lose my dick, I mean, <laughs> that's not a problem. <laughs> Let's do this. I've been looking for somebody to cut that thing off. Yeah. Sign me up. <laughs> Or, I mean, uh, they may not necessarily have one to begin with, right? So they're just like, okay, there's there's no problem here. Exactly. Although I wonder if uh, if the goddess has another kind of way to get back in the good graces for that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I imagine there there very well could be. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think this this world does seem very queer normative, which is very cool to see although there is still some interesting kind of challenges specifically specifically for tet sang because it sounds like tet sang has been trying to conceal the fact that they well it's it's hard to say if they identify as a woman or not because get im identifies them as a woman and they say yes like i guess in in a past life i was but then again, they use like he, him, and they're identifying as a man now. So it's a very like difficult situation there. But I guess it seems like regardless, Tet Sang is trying to keep that from the rest of the group. Right. Yeah, I wasn't entirely clear if the reason was more to divorce the fact that they used to be a nun or mm. and like hide that or whether it was specifically to hide that like they were like fitting in at a all women convent before and now they're identifying as a man and presenting as a man uh so i'm not really sure where that line fell but it definitely mm-hmm. seems like they think of themselves as a man now yes yeah i think that's true um, yeah i got the, i got the sense that it was more about concealing the past rather than any repercussions hmm. they would face uh, by what by what gender they reveal themselves as. Um, I thought that what was really interesting about this, like a lot of books, I think, try to make a world that's not heteronormative, right? Which, which this one does. I, I, what I really liked about this one is it didn't really like explain it. You know what I mean? Like it was just, this is what it is. And that's... Like without, it didn't have to go in and be like, this is why it is. This is, this is, uh, how it works and everything. It was just like, yeah, this is what it is. It's a normal world. It's not heteronormative, uh, which I really appreciate. Cause like our world is the weird one <laughs> and it was, uh, I don't know. It was, it was cool to see that without like all the, all the caveats that a lot of or a lot of the times necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I got the impression at least that that was very much intentional and that's what the author was trying to convey. Uh, though at the same time, there's got to be an element, which I think is probably a small part, where it's a novella, it's very short. Uh, the way the narration is, is you're not like really locked inside someone's head. You're, I guess, maybe closest to Tetsang, but other than that, you're kind of floating around. You're like this 
somewhat third person limited, but you're not inside their head. I don't really know what you would call that perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. it feels like second person. I know it's not second person. That's a very specific perspective, but it feels like second person would be between first and third person. So it feels like that's kind of where we were in this book. Yeah. This is something that I've said in our in previous episodes on on me and Dan's podcast, but it's always really interesting to me what an author changes about a world and what they keep constant. So like fantasy or or whatever you want to call the genre, I I view as like taking something from our world and changing it. And it's interesting to me, not really like a criticism or a praise thing, just what what has changed and what's kept constant. So like we're we're not a heteronormative world here, but we are like it's a man's world. Right. There's still a patriarchy in place. Right. I don't really have have much like analysis on that by itself. I just I don't know. It's just really interesting to see what what we keep from our world and what we change. I I think we also might have to consider the fact that we've been talking about the world like it's not heteronormative and cisgender normative, but I don't know if it's necessarily the entire nation and this entire world that's like that. So the pure the pure moon religion seems very open about it. Like they're clearly open about it and it seems like the bandits, at least the hot bandit, is pretty open and chill with it. Um, but I will say we haven't seen any like positive affirmation from like anybody else outside this group about like heteronormativity or cisgender normativity in this world. So we might have to be a little bit skeptical or put a little bit of a slowdown there. But I will say, yeah, I agree. It's very interesting how it's still very patriarchal. And at the very beginning, like the book opens with a patron in the coffee shop, like sexually harassing employees. So, so yeah, there's still some very problematic gender relations or maybe power dynamics present in this world. Uh, something that I want to kind of go back to that we talked a little bit about is get M's isolation. So I'm curious what you all thought that actually looked like because we don't get a lot of details in the novella. And what I was picturing when she went in for a 10 year isolation is that she went into like a room by herself where they brought her food and she was expected to just like pray and meditate. And that was like the entirety of this isolation that she went into. Um, At one point when she's describing when she left her Tokong that she realized something was wrong when nobody brought her food and that a week later she left her cell. That's what's kind of making me think that it's that she's just by herself for 10 years getting food like a prisoner, sort of. Um, but I'm curious if you guys have a different picture for what that isolation looked like. That's pretty much what I was picturing as well. I would imagine 
it's not like a dungeon cell or something like that. Like I would imagine this is something like, okay, like it's going to be incredibly simple, but we're not trying to torture you here. Like if anything, achieving a state of enlightenment like she's trying to get is less likely if you're really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that I took it as a little bit looser, maybe. But the point that you bring up about her not realizing until no one brought her food makes me question that a little bit. Now I'm picturing it as more of like she has her cell and she's going to stay in it in general, but is like kind of free to come out whenever she wants. Like the door is open, mm -hmm. but her job is to stay in there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now I'm thinking, so the, I forget the character's name, but the person we meet at the end who was also from the same Tokong as Gwet M. Gwet M was kind of expecting that person to recognize them. And if they were in pure isolation the whole time, like that seems very unlikely. So maybe maybe it is kind of not like a strict isolation. It's like, okay, you stay in your room 95% of the time, but like you can take a walk at night or something. You can like talk with people occasionally. If you happen to run into someone, just like stay an extra hour in your cell the next day. <laughs> right, you've got to make up for it, right? Maybe you stay six feet apart from everybody at all times, wear a mask when you go out. Yeah, I think we can relate. I think we can yep. relate a little bit to this. Um, yeah, okay. Because that was what was tripping me up too, is it seemed like she knew things from within her Tokong. Like she knew that they got a turtle pond installed recently and who funded that. And like she knew this wealthy guy. Perhaps she learned all that before she went into isolation because she's only she was like given to the tokong when she's very young and then at 15 she went into isolation so maybe within that time is like when all of this stuff is happening but i think it's at least it makes more sense from this story if she does have some kind of like freedom to leave herself if she wants to and she does occasionally get out because otherwise going to work at a coffee shop after being in isolation for 10 years sounds so anxiety inducing. Yeah. I mean, just going to a coffee shop now sounds anxiety inducing <laughs> for me. <laughs> so true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think, Travis, I think you mentioned this earlier, but my, if I was in like full isolation for this long, my social skills would be horrific. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I do think based on that and some other things that she's probably allowed out a little bit. I feel like this this order that she's in is like high up on taking this religion seriously, but doesn't want to do the super intense things. It's like, yeah, we're going to do, you know, you can go into isolation, but you could come out every now and then whenever you want to. I feel like they're very, I don't, tolerant isn't the right word for this, but like, kind of chill mm. and i mean given what we see that kind of isolation can help bring out in a person from the pure moon uh they've got to expect them to use these talents at some point right like if right. they were locked away forever what's the point like they might achieve perfect enlightenment but then like they never get to contribute to the order at all right we, we never see a cool battle between two of them with their superpowers that people would pay hundreds of dollars for a ticket for Right, we never get to see that. This is a great point, and it. So I think there's definitely some self encouragement 
among them to do it. And I imagine too, even if there wasn't like superpowers that you get uh, from being in isolation, a lot of people would just choose to do this. But it, this pure moon religion does seem very self-motivated. It seems very like there's not a lot of strict regulations about it. It's more of just like the the will comes from within rather than without. Um, and this this leads me to a question that I'm curious about about what we would do if if we were in seclusion. What are we What are we doing after year three? So like if I'm in seclusion, I've been there for three years. After that point, how am I keeping myself entertained? Obviously, I'm a I'm a follower of the pure moon and I'm praying most of the time. But I can't be praying all of the time. Like I've got to have something to keep me entertained. And I don't I don't know exactly what that is yet. Like am I coming up with a new little game that I can play? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like you've got a little you've got a little personal project. Mhm. Exactly. You're you're like, I'm going to spend an hour every day to my personal project. When my seclusion is up after 10 years, that's going to be pretty neat. Right. I'm going to be, I'm going to have this super cool uh, manga that I wrote. Yeah, that's a good question because my my first thought is, well, like, do we have Netflix? Do we have like <laughs> Kindle books or anything? But yeah, that's probably off the table for this time period. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know what I would do. Like, I could think maybe build an elaborate structure model type thing, but then how do you get that out of your cell at the end? Right, right. I th- okay, I think that we have an answer for what she did. Ooh, okay. And I think that she's uh, she's working on her martial arts during this period. Well, but I don't know if that comes from the meditation itself. It's it's hard for me to tell if her isolation is giving her these abilities or if she's learning them on the side. You're saying you're saying the, these abilities that she has at the end, she has learned outside of her isolation. <laughs> well, okay, 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 okay. She has the the like magic abilities uh-huh. that are from her isolation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I feel like she's got some some uh, some quick jabs and then some like great footwork that seems to be. I don't think that you're getting those kind of fighting skills from just like meditating on them. You know what I mean? She's running some like. She's doing pull-ups. She's doing some those little foot ladders that I see football players do. But like, imagine though, if that is her personal project that she does to keep herself busy, what were they hoping for otherwise? Someone who can just like teleport in somewhere and be like, hey, I I can't fight. I can't do anything. But like, would you like to read my manga maybe? And then like teleport back. Yeah. Well, okay. I imagine you could make money from just being able to teleport though because throughout this book we hear that the only thing the monks are good for is begging for money because they need donations in order to get funding and like keep their their tokongs running is they're constantly asking people for money so if i had somebody who could just teleport and even if that's all they could do I could set up a little circus maybe, start charging admission. I could also have them just like teleport into a bank uh, and be like, <laughs> hey, I won't take any money because that's wrong. 
but I think you should pay me to not take any money. Blackmail is fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just I think there's other money making opportunities if you can just teleport. That perhaps that's what they have in mind is some other some other money making enterprise. And then when it comes out that she can do also do kung fu, they're like, oh, well, I guess that's cool too. But it does seem like they would want. Well, although how does that necessarily help other people if she can like disable someone with a neck punch mm -hmm. i mean i guess i'm trying to think of like some forms of martial arts are more zen than they are about attacking or anything mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. maybe maybe kind of what i'm picturing is the entire order is learning these martial arts techniques and then maybe gwen is kind of like off to the side doing it so you've got like your group of people and then she's off to the side so she's not like forming personal connections with the rest of the group but she's still getting the instruction and then she goes back to her cell at the end mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i think I think there's a good chance this is what's happening because you don't get the technique from just meditating all day, right? You have to practice this. You have to do the physical movements in order to actually figure out the martial arts abilities. So I think this is this is probably what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. Which which still leaves the question, what is she doing in that hour of free time that she's got? And I you know, I don't know if uh I don't know if we're going to necessarily come up with the answer to that. Uh, but if any listeners out there want to want to let us know, uh, you could tweet at either us at DC to BC uh, or at Travis's show. Travis, if you want to plug your Twitter. Yeah, it's just uh, at the fantasy end. Uh, so you can just tweet at us there and someone will respond. <laughs> <laughs> it may not be me. But uh, if you have any ideas for what uh, what Gwedim is doing in this free time, we'd be we'd be curious to find out. So let's take a break there and pause before we go into the next half of the discussion. Uh, but before we close this part out, uh, do you guys want to just let people know where we can find you online, Dan? If you want to go first, oh, sure. Um, so we have uh, our website, don'tcallitabookclub.com. That's where we have all of our episodes. If you want to follow us on any of your podcast players, it's just don't call it a book club. We've also got a Twitter at DC at a BC. Uh, we're on Facebook and we have a subreddit, our don't call it a book club that uh, we usually interact with at least once a week um, and try and have some of those comments on the show even. So if you want to, if you want to send something to us or comment on anything we're doing, uh, feel free to follow us on any of those platforms. Yeah, well, that should cover us about everything for now. Luke, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been great. And now let's jump over to the Don't Call It a Book Club podcast. <laughs>